Today's show is sponsored by Podcorn, the leading podcast influencer marketplace. Are you a podcast veteran, or perhaps you're just getting started in the podcast universe? If you are, you're probably aware of the need to monetize the show, but maybe you're worried that some of the options out there are going to take away your creative freedom. You know what I'm talking about. When your hosting site just adds advertising to your show and you have no say over what the product is, well, Podcorn allows you, the podcaster, to decide what companies you work with, what products you promote, and it's all at your convenience. You can realize your monetization potential while at the same time enjoying that creative freedom that we all want. There is no middleman, and you never give up the rights to your podcast. Best of all, Podcorn has quick payouts and their payment system is safe and secure. If you think your podcast is too small, think again. There are sponsorship opportunities for podcasts of any and all sizes. I've been with Podcorn for about six months, and I've picked the products that I want to work with. Click on the link in the show notes page to sign up with Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 31, The End of the New Deal and Its Critics. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Alright, so spring has sprung as I record this, and I hope you all are having a good start to 2021. Just a few messages before we get started. As you're well aware, we have a Patreon where for $5 a month you can support the show, help keep the lights on, so to speak, and um, especially important to help purchase sources for the upcoming season. And thank you to all of our Patreon members for their continued support, especially longtime listeners and supporters like Fernie. Y'all are awesome. Now, speaking of Patreon, we have some new members, and it's been a while since I've done a shout-out, so um, I apologize if you're getting one for the second time. But first, we have Jason Clement, who joined at the F-14 Tomcat level. Next is Bob Ferguson and Harriet Buchanan, both of whom also signed up for the F-14 Tomcat level. Thank you so very much. Espen Belsness, I hope I'm getting these names right, and John Wee are also members now at the F-14 Tomcat level. Next up is Jerry Wagoner. Puking Dog, now that is an interesting name, um, Anton Zoflik and Steve W. Marshall, all of whom signed up at the F-14 Tomcat level. So thank you so very much. Matthew Cutler joined recently at the Iowa-class battleship tier. Wow, thank you, Matt. That's awesome. And then finally, we have Miriam Milivan, also at the F-14 Tomcat level. So again, you guys are all Great, and without you, this show may not exist. So I thank you very much for your kind support. Now, if if you aren't into Patreon, but you would like to help keep the lights on, then when you shop on Amazon, simply enter Amazon through one of the linked resources on the show's webpage. We also have a Buy Me a Coffee setup. Now, what is that? Well, it's kind of like Patreon, but it's a place where you can donate in $5 increments, basically the cost of a nice cup of coffee at Starbucks. Um, you can simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash Sean Worswick and send a donation my way. Now, this, of course, goes to pay for web hosting, podcast hosting, books, things of that nature. And believe it or not, every little bit does truly help, and it's very much appreciated. Speaking of Buy Me A Coffee, I need to thank Nicholas Riga, who recently supported the show via Buy Me A Coffee. Thank you so much, Nicholas. I really appreciate it. Okay, enough of the crass pleas for support. This week, the song of the week is The Rich Man and the Poor Man by Bill Gray. 
We'll see you on the other side. There's just two kinds of people, the sinner and the saint. There's one that gets and always got, while the other poor one ain't. Oh, the rich man drives his Lincoln past the red light with a grin. And the poor man follows right behind in his little hunk of tin. There's a motorcycle copper following upon that trail. Oh, the rich man tears his ticket, but the poor man goes to jail. Rich man takes the high road anywhere that he may go. But when the poor man's traveling, he must always take the low. So if you're rich, you'll travel snug as peas are in the pot. Oh, the rich man rides the cushion, and the poor man rides the ride. Oh, the rich man when he's ailing. Stays at home and calls the doc, but the poor man has to go to work, be in time to punch a clock. The rich man takes his medicine, has his doctors and his nurses. Okay, so before we get into the second half of the New Deal, I want to discuss some of the critics of FDR's programs. Now, I remember growing up, uh, my history teacher did not discuss the idea that there were critics of the New Deal. From what I learned, FDR was popular. He ended the Depression. Everyone loved him. Then I went to college, and I had that narrative blown up. Now, the first group of critics is just that, a group, the American Liberty League. This was a group of wealthy Republicans and conservative Democrats, men like Al Smith and John W. Davis, and they formed in 1934 this group, the American Liberty League, to fight the socialistic schemes of the New Deal. They also sought to defend business interests and to promote the idea of the open shop. That is, the idea that workers are not required to join a union in order to work in a given place of employment. They tried to defeat FDR in the 1936 election, but they were unsuccessful. Now, another critic of FDR was an individual, and that was Father Charles Coughlin. Originally a fervent supporter of FDR, he even coined the phrase Roosevelt or Ruin in the 1932 campaign, Um, He eventually became one of his biggest critics. He claimed the NIRA and the AAA benefited industry and wealthy farmers and did nothing for the so-called little guy. Coughlin was popular, and he had the largest radio audience in the United States, um, and in U.S. history, actually, with 40 million listeners. Amongst his charges were that Roosevelt had lied when he failed to nationalize the banks. Later, his anti-Semitic and strong fascist rhetoric resulted in the cancellation of his radio program. Um, He did continue to work as a parish priest and passed away in 1979 at the age of 88. Now, a third critic was the Senator Huey P. Long. Similarly to Coughlin, Long attacked FDR from the left for not going far enough. His share the wealth plan was just that, a plan to share the wealth, although I don't think we can say it was his wealth to share. The idea was to make the wealth confiscated in the long plan, which put a cap on individual wealth at $100 million, limited annual income at $1 million, and it would cap the amount that an individual could inherit at $5 million. He said the idea was to make, quote, every man a king, end quote, by giving them $5,000. While he did have a following, Congress did not support this plan, so he created the Share Our Wealth Society. 
and by 1935, it had over 7 million members. He also proposed things like free college and vocational training, federal control of the economy, more than it already had, a 30-hour work week, and even a one-month vacation for all workers. He claimed his ideas would end the Depression, but they were roundly condemned by economists across the board. Long was planning on challenging FDR in the 1936 election and was allied with Father Coughlin, but he was assassinated in 1935 by Carl Weiss, who got off a single shot at Long from point-blank range. Long's bodyguards, known as the Skull Crushers, fired on Weiss, um, and a later autopsy put the number of shots in his body at 60. Needless to say, they killed him. <laughs> um, Long died 31 hours after he had been shot. Gerald Smith, the new head of Shara Wealth, had nowhere near the charisma Huey Long had, and the movement lost momentum. Now, the fourth critic was Dr. Francis Townsend. He was another one of these critics coming from the left. He organized well over 5 million supporters for his old age revolving pension plan. He advocated giving each senior citizen $200 a month, or about two times the average worker's salary, under the condition that they spend the money within a month. The scheme was funded uh, was to be funded, I should say, by a national gross sales tax. Some estimates had it costing about one half of the national income, and needless to say, this never was enacted. All right, so let's talk about the second New Deal, and we're not going to spend near as much time on this one as we did on the first. Um, but Roosevelt responded to Democratic voters influenced by his left-wing critics, along with the imminent destruction of the NRA and the approaching election of 1936 by introducing new programs in spring 1935, much of which was passed that summer. Now, these programs included the WPA, the NYA, REA, the Wagner Act, Social Security Act, the Banking Act of 1935, um, the Public, Holding, Public Utility Holding Company Act, and the Revenue Act. Whew, that's a lot to say. Now, this represents the end of the New Deal, as the more liberal Democrats lost control of Congress in 1938, and the country in general started moving away from focusing on domestic issues and more to discussing the international situation in both Asia and Europe. That brings us to the 1936 election cycle. This one certified the new Democratic Party coalition, which had started to come together in 1932. This coalition consisted of African Americans, unions, intellectuals, urban political machines, and the South. The party platform called for expanded farm programs, um, pro-labor legislation, more rural electrification and public housing, as well as the enforcement of antitrust laws. The Republicans, on the other hand, offered no true alternative to FDR. The GOP nominated Alfred Landon of Kansas, a former progressive supporter of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he argued some New Deal programs were unconstitutional. He called for a balanced budget, higher tariffs. Uh, lower corporate taxes. However, he did not call for the repeal of all New Deal legislation. Instead, he promised better and less expensive relief, as well as farm and labor programs. Now, my criticism of him is that he's not offering a true alternative to FDR. He's essentially light beer to FDR's full-on lager. I know which one I'd pick. Let's just say I don't care for light beer. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. I know you all are going to enjoy the new podcast based on Wooga's smash hit hidden object game titled June's Journey. Let's face it, the last 14 months have been rough. 
Imagine leaving our troubled times behind and getting lost in the exciting world of a detective in the 1920s. Perhaps you'd enjoy the tales of the days of prohibition, maybe the trenches of World War I or even the women's suffrage movement. If that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. June's Journey, The Lost Diaries is an ASMR-like podcast experience guided by Sarah Grayson, voice actress from indie video game hits Gone Home and Tacoma. This is the first narrative mobile game podcast tie-in ever. Furthermore, players of June's Journey will get never-before-heard hints about heroine June Parker's life before she became a detective. Look, I love the show, and if I have a complaint, it's that I want more episodes. I'm sure you all will love this show as well. Listen to June's Journey, The Lost Diaries, for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. There was a third party in this cycle, the Union Party. Organized by Townsend, Coughlin, and Gerald L.K. Smith, it was economically far left, but when it came to social policies, it was fairly conservative. This short-lived party, and it only lasted for just over a year or so, was beset by problems from the start. Each of the three men I mentioned as founders saw themselves, not the actual nominee, as the true leader. Their causes weren't helped by the vicious attacks leveled against FDR, who was quite popular by Smith and Coughlin. Indeed, it brought a backlash against the party, and the leaders of the Catholic Church in the United States ended up denouncing Coughlin. In the end, FDR won re-election easily, increasing his percentage of the popular vote up to 60.8% from 57%, and he won the Electoral College 523 to 8. Now, the one thing I've not talked much about so far is the fight over the New Deal in the courts. I might have mentioned it a couple of times, but now is the time to do more than just mention it. First, we're going to discuss two cases, and then we'll mention or discuss the Judiciary Reorganization Bill, also known as the Judicial Procedures Reform Act of 1937. Now, the first case I want to talk about is Schechter versus United States, sometimes known as the Sick Chicken case. Um, In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the NRA was unconstitutional. It stated Congress could not delegate its legislative authority to the executive branch or to code makers in industry. According to the ruling, congressional control of interstate commerce did not apply to the local Brooklyn poultry business of the Schechter brothers. Because the NRA was already floundering, some argue this might actually have helped the president, as now he could blame the Supreme Court as being outdated, which of course he did. If I remember correctly, um, he called it a horse and buggy decision. The second case was Butler v. United States. In this case, the court ruled the regulatory taxation provisions of the AAA were unconstitutional. It ruled the federal government could not tax businesses that brought agricultural products and then used those taxes to benefit farmers who received federal subsidies. Both cases resulted in Roosevelt revamping his recovery and reform measures to launch the second New Deal. In the end, New Deal programs were defeated in seven of nine Supreme Court decisions. And that brings us to the Judiciary Reorganization Bill. Now, this was FDR's attempt to remove old conservative justices um, by imposing a retirement requirement for justices 70 years old or older. Six of the justices at that point were of uh, age 70. Now, if a justice refused to step down, then, according to the bill, the president would appoint an additional justice. Had the bill actually passed, FDR could have immediately appointed six new Supreme Court justices bringing the total number of judges to 15. Now, of course, I'm sure the fact that the court was finding many of his programs to be unconstitutional 
had nothing to do with this plan whatsoever. Now, were there critics? You better believe it. And they accused Roosevelt of being a dictator who was trying to pack the court with progressive judges who agreed with his policies. This wasn't just unpopular with the Republicans, the GOP. Even conservative members of the Democrat Party disliked it and accused him of tampering with the delicate checks and balances in the Constitution. The bill was soundly defeated in Congress, but interestingly enough, the court suddenly began siding with New Deal programs on later decisions. Minimum wages for women, the Wagner Act, and the Social Security Act were all upheld by the court. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and Justice Owen Roberts began voting with the more progressive members. Ironically, FDR ended up appointing nine judges to the court over the course of his time in the White House, due either to death or resignation. Now, believe it or not, we're at the end of the New Deal. In 1937, the economy dipped back into what some call recession. Keep in mind, it had not yet gotten back to the levels it was at late in the Calvin Coolidge administration. Unemployment was still somewhere around 15%, three times what it had been averaging during most of the 1920s. In 1937, believing the economy was recovering, FDR authorized a reduction in spending. By 1938, the economy was even worse than it had been. Direct aid payments, especially the WPA, were resumed to try and turn things around. I think I've mentioned this before, but FDR was following the economic theories of John Maynard Keynes. Keynes argued government should resort to deficit spending in order to prime the pump of the economy. Then government would make up the money when the economy improved via increased tax revenue. Did it work? Not really. In the end, the economy didn't improve until after World War II. Then in 1938, an off-year election cycle, the Democrats lost 80 seats in Congress. The emerging conservative coalition could now block FDR's legislation. Who made up the coalition? Uh, It was a combination of Republicans and conservative Democrats, most of whom were Southern. He also had the approaching war in Europe starting to divert public attention from domestic issues to foreign affairs, thus the New Deal period was effectively at an end. Now, I've been critical of the New Deal, and our episode is going to be critical, our next episode, I should say, is going to be a critical assessment of both the New Deal and the progressives. But I do want to end this episode with a quick look at the argument for FDR and his programs. First, some argue it might have saved American capitalism. They note that, unlike in Europe, there was no revolution here. A fascist dictator did not take over the country. Um, They also argue that the banking system was saved virtually overnight in March 1933. Further, they note that millions of homeowners were saved from foreclosure and the housing industry was given a major boost. And thanks to regulation that created institutions such as the SEC and the FDIC, Roosevelt was able to purge capitalism of some of its worst problems. Next, FDR was able to restore America's pride and faith in the government while, at the same time, allowing millions of people to regain their self-respect. Third, the New Deal relieved the worst of the crisis in 1933. Relief had been the primary objective, and that objective had been achieved. Fourth, Roosevelt promoted the principle that the federal government was morally bound to prevent mass hunger by managing the economy. This became official with the passage of the Employment Act of 1946 during Harry S. Truman's presidency. I think you could say there are many Americans who agree with this principle today, both in the Democrat and Republican parties. Fifth, New Deal reforms are still important and with us today, including Social Security, labor laws, the TVA, FDIC, FHA, and both minimum wage and maximum hours worked laws. Sixth is a fairer distribution of the national income 
And finally, they would argue that FDR was actually a moderate, not the radical left-wing politician some of his enemies made him out to be, and he was certainly not the far-right fascist dictator that ruled in, say, Italy or Germany. Okay, so that is all for today. This was a slightly shorter episode than normal, or what my goal is usually, but we've had some long ones lately, and the next one should be another pretty long one. So, until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.